Nice girl with five husbands. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Phil Chenevere. Nice Girl with Five Husbands by Fritz Leiber. To be given paid-up leisure and find yourself unable to create is unpleasant for any artist. To be stranded in a cluster of desert cabins with a dozen lonely people in the same predicament only makes it worse. So Tom Dorset was understandably irked with himself and the Tosker Brown Vacation Fellowships as he climbed with the sun into the Valley of Red Stones. He accepted the chafing of his camera strap against his shoulder as the nagging of a conscience. He agreed with the disparaging hisses of the grains of sand rutched by his sneakers. And he wished that the occasional breezes, which faintly echoed the same criticisms, could blow him into a friendlier, less jealous age. He had no way of knowing that just as there are winds that blow through space, so there are winds that blow through time. Such winds may be strong or weak. The strong ones are rare and seldom blow for short distances, or more of us would know about them. What they pick up is almost always whirled far into the future or past. This has happened to people. There was Ambrose Bierce, who walked out of America and existence. There are thousands of others who have disappeared without a trace, though many of these may not have been caught up by time tornadoes, and I do not know if a time gale blew across the deck of the Marie Celeste. Sometimes a time wind is playful, snatching up an object, sporting with it for a season and then returning it unharmed to its original place. Sometimes we may be blown about by whimsical time winds without realizing it. Memory, for example, is a tiny time breeze, so weak that it can ripple only the mind. A very few time winds are like the monsoon, blowing at fixed intervals, first in one direction, then the other. Such a time wind blows near a balancing rock in a valley of red stones in the American southwest. Every morning at ten o'clock it blows a hundred years into the future. Every afternoon at two it blows a hundred years into the past. Quite a number of people have unwittingly seen time winds in operation. They are misty spots on the sea's horizon or wavery patches over desert sands. There are mirages and will-o'-the-wisps and ice blinks. And there are dust devils, such as Tom Dorset walked into, near the balancing rock. It seemed to him no more than a spiteful upgust of sand, against which he closed his eyes until the warm granules stopped peppering the lids. He opened them to see the balancing rock had silently fallen and lay a quarter buried. No, that couldn't be, he told himself instantly. He had been preoccupied. He must have passed the balancing rock and held its image in his mind. Despite this rationalization, he was quite shaken. The strap of his camera slipped slowly down his arm without his feeling it. And just then, there stepped around the giant bobbin of the rock 
an extraordinarily pretty girl with hair the same pinkish copper color. She was barefoot and wearing a pale blue play suit, rather like a Grecian tunic. But most important, as she stood there towing his rough shadow in the sand, there was a complete naturalness about her, an absence of sharp edges, as if her personality had weathered without aging, just as the valley seemed to have taken another step toward eternity in the space of an instant. She must have assumed something of the same gentleness in him, for her faint surprise faded, and she asked him, as easily as if he were a friend of five years standing, "'Tell me now, do you think a woman can love just one man, all her life, and a man just one woman?' Tom Dorset made a dazed sound. His mind searched wildly. "'I do,' she said, looking at him as calmly as at a mountain. "'I think a man and woman can be each other's world, like Tristan and Ilstolt, or Frederick and Catherine. Those old authors were wise. I don't see why on earth a girl has to spread her love around, no matter how enriching the experiences may be.' "'You know, I agree with you.' Tom said, thinking he'd caught her idea. It was impossible not to catch her casualness. I think there's something cheap about the way everybody's supposed to run after sex these days. I don't mean that exactly. Tenderness is beautiful, but... She pouted. A big family can be vastly crushing. I wanted to declare today a holiday, but they outvoted me. <sighs> Jock said it didn't chime with our mood cycles. But I was angry with them, so I put on my clothes. Put on? To make it a holiday, she explained bafflingly. And I walked here for a tantrum. She stepped out of Tom's shadow and hopped back. Oh, the sand's getting hot, she said, rubbing the grains from the pale and uncramped toes. You go barefoot a lot? Tom guessed. No, mostly digitals, she replied and took something shimmering from a pocket at her hip and drew it on her foot. It was a high-ankled, transparent moccasin with five separate toes. She zipped it shut with the speed of a card trick, then similarly gloved the other foot. Again, the metal-edged slit down the front seemed to close itself. "'I'm behind on the fashions,' Tom said curiously. They were walking side by side now, the way she'd come and he'd been going. How does that zipper work? Magnetic. They're on all my clothes. Very simple. She parted her tunic at the waist, then let it zip together. Clever, Tom remarked with a gulp. There seemed no limits to this girl's naturalness. I see you're a button man, she said. You actually believe it's possible for a man and woman to love just each other? His chuckle was bitter. He was thinking of Eleanor Murphy at Tosker Brown, and a bit about coal-faced Miss Tosker herself. I sometimes wonder if it's possible for anyone to love anyone. You haven't met the right girls, she said. Girl, he corrected. She grinned at him. You make me think you really are a monogamist. What group do you come from? Let's not talk about that, he requested. He was willing to forego knowing how she'd guessed he was from an art group, 
If he could be spared talking about vac vacation fellowships and those nervous little cabins. My group's very nice on the whole, the girl said, but at times they can be nefandously exasperating. Jock's the worst, quietly guiding the rest of us like an analyst. How I loathe that man! But Larry's almost as bad with his shame-faced bumptiousness as if we'd all sneaked off on a joyride to Venus. And there's Jokichi at the opposite extreme, forever scared he won't distribute his affection equally, dividing it up into mean little packets like candy for jealous children who would scream if they got one chewy less. And then there's Sasha and Ernest. Who are you talking about? Tom asked. My husband's, she shook her head dolefully. To find five more difficult men would be positively Martian. Tom's mind backtracked frantically, searching all conversations at Tosker Brown for gossip about cultists in the neighborhood. It found nothing and embarked on a wider search. There were the Mormons. Was that the word that had sounded like Martian? But it wasn't Mormon husbands who were plural. And then there was Onida. Weren't husbands and wives both plural there? But that was 19th century New England. Five husbands? he repeated. She nodded. He went on. Do you mean to say five men have got you alone somewhere up here? To be sure not, she replied. There are my co-wives. Co-wives? Co-wives, she said more slowly. They can be facerosely exasperating, too. Tom's mind did some more searching. And yet you believe in monogamy? She smiled. Only when I'm having tantrums. It was civilized of you to agree with me. But I actually do believe in monogamy, he protested. She gave his hand a little squeeze. You are nice, but let's rush now. I've finished my tantrum, and I want you to meet my group. You can fresh yourself with us. As they hurried across the heated sands, Tom Dorset felt for the first time a twinge of uneasiness. There was something about this girl, more than her strange clothes and the odd words she used now and then, something almost, though Ghost didn't wear digitals, spectral. They scrambled up a little rise, digging their footgear into the sand, until they stood on a long flat, and there, serpentining round two great clumps of rock, was a many-windowed adobe ranch house with a roof like fresh soot. "'Oh, they've put on their clothes!' his companion exclaimed with pleasure. "'They've decided to make it a holiday after all.' Tom spotted a beard in the group swarming out to meet them. Its cultish look gave him a momentary feeling of superiority— followed by an equally momentary apprehension. The five husbands were certainly husky. Then both feelings were swallowed up in the swirl of introduction. He told his own name, found that his companion's was Lois Wolver. Then smiling faces began to bob toward his. His hands were shaken, his cheeks were kissed. He was even spun around like blind man's bluff so that he lost track of the husbands and failed to attach Machel, Rachel, Simone, and Joyce to the right owners. 
He did notice that Jokiki was an Oriental, with the skin as tight as enameled china, and that Rachel was a tall, slim Negro girl. And someone said, Joyce isn't a wolver, she's just visiting. He got a much clearer impression of the clothes than the names. They were colorful, costly-looking, and mostly Egyptian and Cretan in inspiration. Some of them would have been quite immodest, even compared to Miss Tosker's famous playsuits, except that the wearers didn't seem to feel so. "'There goes the middle-morning rocket!' one of them eagerly cried. Tom looked up with the rest, but his eyes caught the dazzling sun. However, he heard a faint roaring that quickly sank in volume and pitch, and it reminded him that the army had a rocket-testing range in this area. He had little interest in science, but he hadn't known they were on a daily schedule. "'Do you suppose it's off the track?' he asked anxiously. "'Not a chance,' someone told him, the beard, he thought. The assurance of the tones gave him a possible solution. Scientists came from all over the world these days, and might have all sorts of advanced ideas. This could be a group working at a nearby atomic project and leading its peculiar private life on the side. As they eddied toward the house, he heard Lois remind someone, "'But you finally did declare it a holiday.' And a husband, who looked like a gay pharaoh, responded, "'I had another C at the mood charts, and I found a suitable surge I missed.' Meanwhile the beard, a black one, had taken Tom in charge. Tom wasn't sure of his name, but he had a tan skin, a green sarong, and a fiercely jovial expression. "'The swimming pool's around there, the landing spot's on the other side,' he began, then noticed Tom gazing at the sooty roof. "'Sun power cells,' he explained proudly. "'They store all the current we need.' Tom felt his idea confirmed. "'Wonder you don't use atomic power,' he observed lightly. The beard nodded. "'We've been asked that. Matter of aesthetics. Why waste sunlight or use hard radiations needlessly? Of course, you might feel differently. What's your group, did you say?' "'Tosker Brown.' Tom told him, adding, when the beard frowned, "'The fellowship people, you know?' "'I don't,' the beard confessed. "'Where are you located?' Tom briefly described the ranch house and cabins at the other end of the valley. "'Comic? I can't place it,' the beard shrugged. "'Here come the children.' A dozen naked youngsters raced around the ranch house, followed by a woman in a vaguely African dress opened down the sides. Yours? Tom asked. Ours, the beard answered. C'est un homme. Regardez de vêtements. No need to practice, kids. This is a holiday, the beard told them. Tom, Helen, he said, introducing the woman with the air-conditioned garment. Her turn today to companion de Kinder. One of the latter rapped on the beard's knee. May we show the stranger our things? Instantly the others joined in pleading. The beard shot an inquiring glance at Tom, who nodded. A moment later the small troop was hurrying him toward a spacious lean-to at the end of the ranch house. It was chock full of strange toys, rocks and plants, small animals in cages and out, and the oddest model airplanes or submarines. 
but Tom was given no time to look at any one thing for long. See my crystals? I grew them. Smell my mutated gardenias. Tell now, isn't there a difference? There didn't seem to be, but he nodded. Look at my squabbits. This referred to some long-eared white squirrels nibbling carrots and nuts. Here's my newest model spaceship, a DS-57-B. Notice the detail. The oldest boy shoved one of the submarine affairs in his face. Tom felt like a figure that is being tugged about in a Rococo painting by wide pink ribbons in the chubby hands of naked cherubs. Except that these cherubs were slim and tanned, fantastically energetic, and apparently of depressingly high IQ. What the scientist did to children. He missed Lois and was grateful for the single little girl, solemnly skipping rope in a corner and paying no attention to him. The odd lingo she repeated stuck in his mind. Gick lo io ricko gisso gick lo io. Suddenly the air was filled with soft chimes. Lunch! The children shouted and ran away. Tom followed at a soberer pace along the wall of the ranch house. He glanced at the huge windows, curious about the living and sleeping arrangements of the wolvers, but the panes were strangely darkened. Then he entered the wide doorway through which the children had scampered, and his curiosity turned to wonder. A resilient green floor that wasn't flat, but sloped up toward the white of the far wall like a breaking wave. Chairs like giants' hands tenderly cupped. Little tables growing like mushrooms and broad-leafed plants out of the green floor. A vast picture window showing the red rocks. Yet it was the wood-paneled walls that electrified his artistic interest. They blossomed with fruits and flowers, deep and poignantly carved in several styles. He had never seen such work. He became aware of a silence and realized that his hosts and hostesses were smiling at him from around a long table. Moved by a sudden humility, he knelt and unlaced his sneakers and added them to the pile of sandals and digitals by the door. As he rose, a soft and comic piping started, and he realized that beyond the table the children were lined up, solemnly puffing at little wooden flutes and recorders. He saw the empty chair at the table and went toward it, conscious for the moment of nothing but his dusty feet. He was disappointed that Lois wasn't sitting next to him, but the food reminded him that he was hungry. There was a charming little steak, striped black and brown with perfection, and all sorts of vegetables and fruits, one or two of which he didn't recognize. Flown from Africa, someone explained to him. These sly scientists, he thought, living beyond their security curtain in the most improbable world. When they were sitting with coffee and wine, and the children had finished their concert and were busy at another table, he asked, How do you manage all this? Jock, the gay pharaoh, shrugged. It's not difficult. Rachel, the slim negro, chuckled in her throat. We're just people, Tom. He tried to phrase his question without mentioning money. What do you all do? Jock's a uranium miner, Larry the Beard answered briskly, taking over. 
Rachel's an algae farmer. I'm a rocket pilot. Lois... Although pleased at this final confirmation of his guess, Tom couldn't help feeling a surge of uneasiness. Sure you should be telling me these things? Larry laughed. <laughs> Why not? Lois and Jakiki have been exchange workers in China the last six months. Mostly digging ditches, Jokiki put in with a smile. And Sasha's in an assembly plant. Helen's a psychiatrist. Oh, we just do ordinary things. Now we're on grand vacation. Grand vacation? When all of us have a vacation together, Larry explained. What do you do? I'm an artist, Tom said, taking out a cigarette. But what else? Larry asked. Tom felt an angry embarrassment. Just an artist, he mumbled, cigarette in mouth, digging in his pockets for a match. Hold on, said Joyce beside him, and pointed a silver pencil at the tip of the cigarette. He felt a faint thrill in his lips, and then started back coughing. Cigarette was lighted. Please mutate my poppy seeds, Mommy. A little girl had darted to Joyce from the children's table. You're a very dirty little girl, Joyce told her without reproof. Hold them out. She briefly directed the silver pin at the clay pellets on the grimy little palm. The little girl shivered delightedly. I love ultrasonics. They feel so funny. She scampered off. Tom cleared his throat. <clears throat> I must say, I'm tremendously impressed with the wood carvings. I'd like to photograph them. Oh, Lord. What's the matter? Rachel asked. I lost my camera somewhere. Camera? Jokiki showed interest. You mean one for stills? Yes. What kind? A Leica, Tom told him. Jokiki seemed impressed. That is interesting. I've never seen one of those old ones. Tom's a button man, Lois remarked, by way of explanation, apparently. Was the camera in a brown case? You dropped it where we met. We can get it later. Good. I'd really like to take those pictures, Tom said. Incidentally, who did the carvings? We did, Jock said. Together. Tom was grateful that the scamper of the children out of the room saved him from having to reply. He couldn't think of anything but a grunt of astonishment. The conversation split into a group of chats about something called a psych machine, trips to Russia, the planet Mars, and several artists Tom had never heard of. He wanted to talk to Lois, but she was one of the groups gabbling about Mars like children. He felt suddenly uneasy and out of things, and neither Rachel's depreciating remarks about her section of the wood carvings nor Joyce's interesting smiles helped much. He was glad when they all began to get up. He wandered outside and made his way to the children's lean-to, feeling very depressed. Once again, he was the center of a friendly, naked cluster, except for the same solemn-faced little girl skipping rope. A rather malicious but not very hopeful whim prompted him to ask the youngest, "'What's one and one?' Ten, the shaver answered glibly. Tom felt pleased. It could also be two, the oldest boy remarked. 
I'll say, Tom agreed. What's the population of the world? About seven hundred million. Tom nodded noncommittally and, grabbing at the first long word that he thought of, turned to the eldest girl. What's poliomyelitis? Never heard of it, she said. The solemn little girl kept droning the same ridiculous chant. Geek lo i o reek o geese o. His ego eased. Tom went outside, and there was Lois. What's the matter? she asked. Nothing, he said. She took his hand. Have we pushed ourselves at you too much? Has our jabbering bothered you? We're a loud-mouthed family, and I didn't think to ask if you were loaning. Loaning? Solituding. In a way, he said. They didn't speak for a moment. Then, are you happy, Lois, in your life here? he asked. Her smile was instant. Of course. Don't you like my group? He hesitated. They make me feel rather no good, he said, and then admitted, but in a way I'm more attracted to them than any people I've ever met. You are? Her grip on his hand tightened. Then why don't you stay with us for a while? I like you. It's too early to propose anything, but I think you have a quality our group lacks. You could see how you fit in. And there's Joyce. She's just visiting, too. You wouldn't have to loan unless you wanted. Before he could think, there was a rhythmic rush of feet, and the wolvers were around him. We're swimming, Simone announced. Lois looked at Tom inquiringly. He smiled his willingness, started to mention he didn't have trunks, then realized that wouldn't be news here. He wondered whether he would blush. Jock fell in beside him as they rounded the ranch house. Larry's been telling me about your group at the other end of the valley. It's comic, but I've whirled down the valley a dozen times and never spotted any sort of place there. What's it like? A ranch house and several cabins. Jock frowned. Comic I never saw it. His face cleared. How about whirling over there? You could point it out to me. It's really there, Tom said uneasily. I'm not making it up. Of course, Jock assured him. It was just an idea. We could pick up your camera on the way, Lois put in. The rest of the group had turned back from the huge oval pool and the dark blue and flashing thing beyond it and stood gay-colored against the pool's pale blue shimmer. How about it? Jock asked. A world before we bathe? Two or three said yes beside Lois, and Jock led the way toward the helicopter that Tom now saw standing beyond the pool, its beetle body as blue as a scarab, its veins flashing silver. The others piled in. Tom followed as casually as he could, trying to suppress the pounding of his heart. Wonder why you don't go by rocket, he remarked lightly. Jock laughed. <laughs> For such a short trip? The veins began to thrum. Tom sat stiffly, gripping the sides of the seat, then realized that the others had sunk back lazily in the cushions. There was a moment of strain, and they were falling ahead and up. 
Looking out the side, Tom saw for a moment the sooty roof of the ranch house and the blue of the pool and the pinkish umber of tanned bodies. Then the helicopter lurched gently around. Without warning, a miserable uneasiness gripped him, a desire to cling mixed with an urge to escape. He tried to convince himself it was fear of the height. He heard Lois tell Jock, that's the place, down by that rock that looks like a wrecked spaceship. The helicopter began to fall forward. Tom felt Lois's hand on his. You haven't answered my question, she said. What? he asked dully. Whether you'll stay with us, at least for a while. He looked at her. Her smile was a comfort. He said, if I possibly can. What could possibly stop you? I don't know, he answered abstractedly. You're strange, Lois told him. There's a weight of sadness in you, as if you lived in a less happy age, as if it weren't twenty-fifty. Twenty? he repeated, awakening from his thoughts with a jerk. What's the time? he asked anxiously. Two, Jock said. The word sounded like a knell. You need cheering, Lois announced firmly. Amid a whoosh of air rebounding from earth, they jounced gently down. Lois faulted out. Come on, she said. Tom followed her. Where? he asked stupidly, looking around at the red rocks through the settling sand clouds stirred by the veins. Your camera, she told him, laughing. Over there. Come on, I'll race you. He started to run with her, and then his uneasiness got beyond his control. He ran faster and faster. He saw Lois catch her foot on a rock and go down, sprawling, but he couldn't stop. He ran desperately around the rock and into a gust of up-whirling sand that terrified him with his suddenness. He tried to escape from the stinging, blinding gust, but there was the nightmarish fright that his wild strides were carrying him nowhere. Then the sand settled. He stopped running and looked around him. He was standing by the balancing rock. He was gasping. At his feet, the rusty brown leather of the camera case peeped from the sand. Lois was nowhere in sight. Neither was the helicopter. The valley seemed different. Rawr, one might almost have said younger. Hours after dark, he trailed into Tosker Brown. Curtained lights still glowed from a few cabins. He was footsore, bewildered, frightened. All afternoon and through the twilight and into the moonlit evening that turned the red rocks black, he had searched the valley. Nowhere had he been able to find the soot-roofed ranch house of the Wolvers. He hadn't even been able to locate the rock like a giant bobbin where he'd met Lois. During the next days, he often returned to the valley, but he never found anything, and he never happened to be near the balancing rock when the time winds blew at ten and two, though once or twice he did see dust devils. Then he went away and eventually forgot. 
In his casual reading, he ran across popular science articles describing the binary system of numbers used in electronic calculating machines, where one and one make ten. He always skipped them. And more than once, he saw the four equations expressing Einstein's generalized theory of gravitation. G-I-K-L-O-I-O-R-I-K-O-G-I-S-O End of Nice Girl with Five Husbands 